Tonight we'll be reading from Acts 15, verses 22 through 29. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Madeline. If you uh, just go ahead and stay in Acts chapter 15, that's where we're going to camp out. It's actually one of the most pivotal chapters in the New Testament setting up what we have now, the church. Uh, do you ever, I don't know if you've ever wrestled with the question of like, what exactly is salvation? Like if you had to like define it, if you had to come, come along and say, what, what is salvation? Give it to me in just a couple of words. What does it look like? That's what's taking place in this, this meeting. It's called the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. Every, uh, every seminary class of, uh, or every, every seminary school has like big debates over this. They wrestle over this. They talk over it. And for good reason. That's what the church has, has, has come up with. They're like, hey, what? this is the big, the big wall we're hitting. So many folks are wanting to follow Jesus. How do we know if they're really following Jesus? What, what litmus test is behind there? What is actually following Jesus? And so they have this, this big meeting to wrestle with all of that. So that's what we're gonna, we're gonna look at tonight. We're gonna look at these two concepts, grace and holiness. It's two marks of the early church. And the, you can go ahead and Sarah, you can leave that up, that's good. Um, the grace that saves me, this is kind of the big idea for tonight. The grace that saves me is designed to go with a holy life that Jesus offers me so that all the world can see how we were meant to be and therefore be drawn to Jesus. So this grace and this holiness are meant to be mingled together so that the world understands what it is you've done when you've given your life to Christ. Otherwise, it's a really confusing message when people say, oh, I'm a Christian, and then they see you doing the same things that, that everybody else is doing. Um, I mean, it just seems like weekly, there's a, a catastrophic event in Christian leaders that gets listed publicly. Somebody does something that is outside of the bounds of Christian normality. And somewhere along the way, we had to come up with, well, what is Christian normality? And that idea can really be wrapped up in the ancient word holiness. And so here's, 
Here, here's what I want you to do in just one second. You're gonna actually chat about this, but I remember the first time this hit me, this idea of like, what is really being a Christian? What is really being saved? I was driving on this beach trip. Um, I had just graduated college, driving on this beach trip to, uh, I think we are going to 30A. Yeah, because there there's a hotel on 30A. I didn't know they existed, but we found one, and there was like, a, I thought it was all like, just like very expensive homes, but it was like a hotel. And so we did this like church trip, I remember riding with a guy who now has 12 children, 12 children. He's been busy. Um, he's, but he, has, he had no children then. But he, or is it 13, Heather? It's 12. That, they don't let you have any more than that. Yeah. <laughs> they don't let you. It's just they stop you there. Um, yeah. So this guy, Eric, he and I are riding along. And for multiple hours, we just talked about, like, so what is being born again, and how does it happen? What are the mechanics of it? What are the marks of that on someone's life? And it was, I didn't know you could talk that long about that subject, but it had been rattling around in my head. And so before I get you to discuss it, I just wanna read the opening lines of Acts 15. Take a look with me. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Then, if you look down in, uh, in verse five, I believe it is, it says in the middle of verse five, it is necessary to circumcise them in order that they can keep the law of Moses. So these folks were saying, it is Jesus that saves you, but it's Jesus and this outward sign of circumcision. And it was causing a big mess in the church because is this salvation? Then you go to verse 11 where Peter is now speaking. And Peter said, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. So now Peter comes in and he says, you know what? It is the grace of Jesus that saves us. So you, just real quick, if you had to, if you had to give a, a Peter-like statement, a verse 11, Acts chapter 15 statement, what would you say, this is salvation? Just with like two or three of you right around you. How would you summarize what is salvation? Ready? Go. All right, let me, let me bring it back. So I'll give you, I'll give you two, two different four-word statements that one, one of these four-word statements uh, Jason used on Sunday if you were here in church. And this, here's the first one. If somebody said, what does it mean to be saved? You could summarize that in these four words. It would be God, man, Jesus, class, response. There we go. Perfect. Some of you are like, where did they get that from? Um, they came to church. Uh, I'm just kidding. No, this is, so, this is also a nine marks idea as well. This is not just that we didn't just come up with this. Um, this is a very common idea. So God, man, Jesus, response. One that Heather has shown me, um, and it's, it's really more prevalent in some of the women's Bible studies. I think us men should adopt it. Um, I don't know why it's not in more men's Bible studies, but I really like this as well. And it echoes that. The other one would be creation, fall, Which one is it? There we go. Redemption. And then restoration. So both of these two categories, 
over the centuries, we have looked at the book of Acts. We've looked at Paul's writings, which had not been written yet at this point. We looked at the book of the Revelation. We compare it to the Old Testament. And all of a sudden, we get this really clear picture that these folks in Acts chapter 15 were just developing. They were just fleshing out this idea. But what we see is, look, God, he made everything, creation, man, we fell. Jesus was sent to redeem us. Now, if we respond in faith to Jesus, we are restored. And this, the restoration process is continuing and will continue until Jesus returns and there is a new heaven and a new earth. I think another way that you could be very, very biblical and sum this up, salvation, the gospel, is God's work, and it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And that's a very, very succinct way to say it. It, it summarizes Ephesians chapter 2, which had not yet been written at this point when Acts chapter 15 was written. And so Peter was really on to something here when he gives a presentation of the gospel and says, I believe that we are saved by grace, and they are also. So that's, what's, that's what they're wrestling with. But then they continue to wrestle, and they say, but there's another component to Christianity, because there's a lot of people that are like, I'm Christians. I mean, we were watching an unnamed television show on the Netflix. You know, my favorite 2020 joke was, I finished Netflix. Um, and so, <laughs> but it, it, it's just funny. Anyway, we were watching an unnamed television show on Netflix where these people sell these houses and it's a very expensive environment. And so, it's, uh, <clears throat> and, and so, <laughs> We were watching one of, these, one of these shows, like lowest common denominator, like you're tired and it's just on and I'll, I'm like, I wanna turn it. And Heather's like, you can turn it. And I'm like, you turn it. And like, then nobody turns it and it's like, we should just go to bed. Um, you know, but we're watching, and people on that show are Christians. People on every show are Christians. And so there's gotta be something more than just saying, yeah, I believe in Jesus. That also is what the church is wrestling with in Acts chapter 15. So what is it? What else is there in the mix to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I believe that I was sinful, separated from God. God sent Jesus. Is that enough? And they said, well, their, their lives should be marked with something. And so this is an ancient idea. And the idea is there should be an element of holiness in these people's lives as well. And so I think holiness is, it's, it's a really, it's a Hebrew word and it's a really complex idea, but I'll just give you a, a kind of succinct definition. Holiness, human holiness is also God's work, but it requires cooperation from the believer to be realized. Human holiness is also God's work. It's not just this, we're gonna see in a minute, it's not just this moral good behavior. Human holiness is God's work. It happens through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But unlike salvation, I can't save myself. I am dead in my trespasses. The Lord is the only one who can save me. It is, it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he gives me the faith to believe in him. He's the one who saves me. But when it comes to holiness, you and I now have a role to play. 
And so it does require cooperation from the believer to be realized. That is why when someone, you know, lives like a fool and they say they're a Christian, people question, are you really a Christian? Because there's a lack of cooperation between that person and the Lord. So <clears throat> John Robert and I were talking on the phone earlier today, and he said, it's kind of like a dance. And I said, it is, it's like a dance. The Holy, it's like the Holy Spirit comes up to you and is inviting you to dance with him. It's up to me to respond. Now the Holy Spirit leads in the dance. I'm supposed to follow, but nonetheless, I'm either dancing with the Holy Spirit or I'm not. And I thought that was a really great illustration. It was, it was succinct, it was clear. I thought that was, was so good. <clears throat> so holiness is in, in the early church is being fleshed out. And that's where Madeline, when she read, if you look to the passage that she read and you go to verse 20, they came up with three markers for holiness. And there, there's, there's more words than three, but the general idea was three. That they would abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols and from blood. And in the mix of that, animals that had been strangled and also sexual immorality. So they're, they're to refrain from, some, from different types of eating and they're to behave sexually. And these are the markers of holiness that they placed on the first century church. They said, this is your part. If you really are a Christian and you are dancing with the Holy Spirit, we'll at least see this in you. So, it's, when you go through the Gospels, it's interesting because Jesus often brings his holiness to people's lives. That's what they were drawn to, by the way. You know that, right? They saw this otherness. They saw this man that was like just separated. Holiness is a calling out. It's a separation. It's an other than. It's not ordinary. It's peculiar the word the King James used. They saw this man that was like other. They saw this man that was peculiar. They saw this man that was so different. It was the holiness of Jesus that people saw and they were drawn to that holiness. His holiness was so powerful, at times people could reach out and touch the hem of his robe and his holiness would flow into them and make them whole. It's a powerful, powerful thing. In fact, the, the, the idea of us being peculiar and this first century church was going to be peculiar because they wouldn't even eat some of the same stuff and they weren't hooking up like everybody else was is this, this idea gets fleshed out in 1 Peter 2, 9. Let me show you this verse. I think we can pull that up. 1 Peter 2, 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. In the King James, his own possession is translated a peculiar people. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This idea is hammered. I'm telling you, it is hammered all into theology in the New Testament, these first church writers. They're writing the first letters and they want people to be clear. I can say I'm a Christian all day long, but if I really am, my life will show it. And, first, and Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 does such an incredible job through the Holy Spirit calling this out. He says, look, you're different now. 
You're a chosen race. Look, you're different. You're a royal priesthood. You're an heir with Christ now if you're really in Christ. You're a holy nation. You are God's own possession. He is jealous of you. You're no longer common. You are now particular. And he knows you by name. And he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And therefore, your life should show you have been called out of darkness, not you can't wait to run back into it. When you get to, to, to study the full picture of the Bible, you see other words that also describe holy and unholy. The words often are clean and unclean. And one of the big pictures in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus, is this idea of clean and unclean, clean and unclean, holy or unholy. And if you are a Christian right now, you are either holy and full of the Lord and walking with the Lord, or you are unholy, you are running from the Holy Spirit. It's really hard to dance the middle ground. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 20 through 21, Timothy or Paul brings this Old Testament idea of clean and unclean into the New Testament. And he says, now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He gets this idea from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament and in the first part of the New Testament, there's two common pieces of cookware, two. And imagine how nice that would be if you were just like, I'm going to the store and there's only two options. There are like two options. And one was stone cookware and the other one was clay cookware. Now, stone is better than clay because if stone becomes unclean, if I leave the tea in there, if I'm like, a bachelor, and I leave like the pizza in there too long or the tea or whatever, and, and I go to, to clean it and some of it still stays in there all over the sides. And it has a completely different color than it used to have. Well, it is now unholy. It's unclean. Now with stone, I can scrub it. And because stone is not super porous, I can scrub it and it will become clean again. It's reusable. However, with clay, clay is full of pores. And after a while, even the best housekeeper is going to have a clay jar that can't be cleaned any longer. And do you know what the Israelites were instructed to do with a clay jar that was no longer able to be made holy again? They were to shatter it so that no one could ever use it. In fact, to this day, you can go to the Holy Land and you can buy pieces of first century and even earlier pottery, pieces of pottery like from pot, like this one on the screen. You can go buy these and the reason they're shattered is not because in 70 AD the Romans came in, the reason they sh were shattered is because devout Jewish families had them and realized this one can no longer be made holy. It has to be shattered. 
And so you would think somewhere in the New Testament we would be called clay jars or stone jars, better yet, because that, be that would be the better choice. What if we were stone jars because we can continue to be made whole over and over and over again? That's, that's probably the best idea, but that's not the idea the Holy Spirit gives Paul. In 2 Corinthians 4, this is a great couple of verses, 2 Corinthians 4, 7, Paul says, this Holy Spirit, this treasure that we have, we have in jars of clay. And the reason that we have the Holy Spirit in us and we're not called jars of stone is because the Lord says it's good that we are fragile. It is good that on our own we realize we should have been broken and shattered. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are the target brand of cookware. We are common cookware. There's no Williams-Sonoma in this room. Like, we are the common brand of cookware as Christians. And as the common brand of cookware, the Lord says, I want you to be fragile. I want you to realize you're fragile so that you'll come to me often to be cleansed and made holy again and again and again. I want you to know that you have pores. I want you to know that you're fragile. I want you to know that you need me and you cannot live this Christian life without me. In the Old Testament, holiness was like a real problem. We're going through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings right now, and Exodus develops the sacrificial system and it rolls in to Leviticus. And so in Exodus, in order to be holy, I would have to like every, I would have to go to the tabernacle often. And I would like, you would know how much sin I had in my life because you would see the animals behind me. And so if you saw me with like a goat, you were like, I knew he was up to something. You know, like you were like, oh man, if you saw me with a bull, you were like, I knew he was bad. He was like very bad. If you saw me with some doves, you would be like, okay, this one isn't bad, they had a kid. But no matter what, like, it's expensive and it's like public and I'm going to the high priest to offer these things to the Lord to admit to him I am unholy and I need to be made right with God again. Can you imagine, just for a minute, if we stepped back and we were like with Moses and Moses is telling us this is how we're gonna do it and Kevin Terrell right here on the front row is like, are you kidding? You could have told me this two weeks ago and I would have made some changes in my life, but now in the last two weeks, a couple of things have happened and I got mad at my boss and blah, 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 and here's what happened. Now Kevin's, Kevin's like super holy, so it's okay for me to say this. He's like an innocent bystander. But you know, like it would be like really hard to, to even wanna practice holiness. Think about the benefits that we have right now as a New Testament Christian. We have the high priest who beckons us to come to him often to re-up on being made whole and being set apart and being peculiar and realizing when we have junk filling the pores in our jar lives. And we can do it privately. We can do it like on our knees in our bedroom. 
I bet those folks in the Old Testament would have been like, you sit down for a minute, kid. I'm gonna tell you a few things about how lucky you are. I mean, like you could just see like that, that old Jewish man like you come here, let's talk. Like, I mean, and, and he would have been from Brooklyn. Like, um, but I mean, my accents are not good. They're not good. <laughs> They're not good. I'll may hear about that later. Yeah, my accents are not good. Let me show you a very, a very like common verse that may add a little bit of flesh to that. I'm gonna go back to my iPad. So this is 1 John chapter one, famous verses in 1 John one. I just wanna read it to you. It says, this is the message, I'm starting in verse five. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light. So God is light. That means that God is completely whole. He is holy, he is peculiar, he is set apart. He, there is none like him. God is light. What's the, what's the litmus test of that? In him, there is no darkness at all. So God is light, there's no darkness at all. Now, if we say that we have fellowship, fellowship's different than relationship, you know that. I can have fellowship with my dad, but I'll always have relationship with my dad. Like, he'll always be my dad. But I may not always have fellowship with my dad. So if we say we have fellowship with Jesus, I'm a Christian in good standing, while we walk in darkness, there's that darkness again, look, we're liars. And we're not practicing, that's doing the truth. But if we walk in the light, like he is in the light, we then have fellowship. But look at this, this is so interesting. We don't just have fellowship with Jesus, but we have fellowship with one another. It's amazing what happens when we enter into holiness. It is a balm that soothes interpersonal relationships. There's something really fascinating about that. It's not just I'm right with God. It's man, I now have a new compassion for people. I have a new patience for people. I have a new ability to forgive people. I have a new ability to love people. It's amazing what holiness, fellowship with the Lord, does for our relationships with each other. And the blood of his son Jesus cleanses us I'm gonna use a different color for this one. Cleanses us from all sin. We say no, have, we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we, now listen to this, this is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, this is where so many people think that like this is about salvation. If we confess our sins, he will do two things. He forgives us, of our sins, and he cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Now, forgive is interesting. Forgive, in the Greek, means to cancel. And this word purify, or cleanse, means to make Holy. What happens when we 
confess our sins to the Lord. He opens up the lid to that clay jar. And we say, there's a piece stuck over here that I can't get up and it's gross. And I would use a nicer illustration, but sin's just not nice. And he goes to scrubbing. And not only does he go to scrubbing and he's like, yep, I got the piece. He then puts us back into play in his kingdom. Because now we're a holy vessel able to be used by him. He forgives, he cancels it, and he restores or he makes holy. It's, it's beautiful what happens. And that's what is happening in this letter to this, these early Christians. They said, look, not eating offensive foods is going to create unity within the body. Not having sexual immorality, abstaining from that is going to make you peculiar among the nations. And as a result, you're gonna be living out the two greatest commandments. You're gonna be loving the Lord your God and how is that I'm offering my body? When I abstain from sexual sin, I'm, I'm, I'm honoring God with my body, I'm loving him. And what else am I doing? I'm loving my neighbor as myself by not unnecessarily offending them. And now, I wanna kinda start to land the plane in an area that's like maybe a little controversial, maybe a little scary, maybe both. I think what happens if I claim to be a Christian and yet ignore the call to holiness? If I was in Acts 15, and I had a real serious girlfriend and they came to the church and Barnabas and Paul delivered this letter and I'm like, cool, I don't have to eat that meat, that's fine, I won't do that. That's what the pagans do anyway, I'm not a pagan. And then they get to the part of abstain from sexual immorality and I was like, whoa, time out there, tiger. Like, we got a good thing going, me and this girl. Well, what happens? if I turn a blind eye and yet still call myself a Christian and I turn a blind eye to clear things that God is calling me to walk out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. I skipped a story a couple of chapters ago. Flip back to chapter five of the book of Acts. One of the like, most peculiar stories, speaking of peculiar, strangest stories in the New Testament is Acts chapter five. The first few verses, Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. He brought only a part of it, laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. That means he died. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. 
The young men rose, wrapped him up, carried him out, and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead. They carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. No commentary explains it very good. It's, we've had some crazy things at Christ's covenant and I've had some crazy things in like all my ministry years. I've never had this happen. But I do remember my mom one day when I was probably 15 years old. She came into my bedroom one night and she said, Thomas, are you sure you're a Christian? And I said, yes, of course I'm a Christian. And she said, I don't think a Christian would behave like you're behaving. And she said, I don't know what the Lord will do to you if you continue going down the path that you're going on. But I think it could be very bad. Now my mom would, she, she truly would go and spend eternity in hell for one of us that we might know the Lord and go be in heaven. She would do it for Heather, her daughter-in-law, she would do it for any of us. So for her to walk in and in the course of that conversation say she felt like I had dishonored God's name so much while claiming to be a Christian that God could take my life so that I would no longer disgrace his name. It was horrible for her to have to say. Meanwhile, about 15 minutes down the road, Fast forward a few minutes or a few years later, my father-in-law, who was not my father-in-law at the time, was talking to my wife, who I did not know at the time, and having the same type of conversation with her. And he said, Heather, you claim to be a Christian, but your lifestyle disgraces the name of Jesus. The holiness that God has called you into when he called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light is completely marred by your lifestyle. And he went on to say, I don't know what the Lord will do to you if you don't turn and call out to him. I brushed off a lot of what my mom said for about another year. But it kept haunting me in the back of my mind. I think Heather brushed off some of what her dad told her for another little bit longer. But at some point, the Lord faced us both separately, individually, with this call of, if I really am a Christian, I can't live in this foot in, foot out world my whole life. It will literally tear me apart or maybe worse yet, 
I would have a moment like Ananias or Sapphira, and I think they're in the scriptures to give us an illustration that the Lord will remove people who disgrace his name, who snub the holiness of God, and yet grab up the salvation that he offers. Look, holiness is not merely moral excellence. Holiness has moral excellence, but holiness first comes from realizing Jesus' grace has called you out of darkness into marvelous light. And then it's embracing that beautiful wonder with life, with a life that is oriented to say, thank you. Holiness always requires an action. Do you remember Moses when he went before the burning bush? Do you remember what God told him? He said, Moses, do what? Because you were standing on holy ground. Take your shoes off. The man that Jesus healed in the pool of Siloam in John 5, do you know what Jesus told him when he found him in the temple later? He basically said, hey, be holy so that something worse doesn't happen to you. The salvation of the Lord is always met with a call for holiness. And the holiest man that ever lived, our Messiah, Jesus, beckons us to try on the suit of holiness, to say yes when he convicts, to confess our sin and say there's a thing right here that I'm embarrassed that's in my life. To have him cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to make us whole again and put us back on the circuit for his use and his glory. But to live muddled is a disgrace to him, his name, and all other believers who have tried to honor him. And he will not tread lightly with that. As we end tonight, I wanna to read to you Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. In the Old Testament, they had to go to that priest with all their sacrifices, but we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession for we have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect was tempted as we were, and yet he was without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. And listen what we draw near for. We draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy, God's forgiveness, his compassion, his help, and grace to live the holy life in our time of need. For those of you who are believers, the Holy Spirit is inviting you to a dance. And he wants you to come test out the dance floor that he's got prepared for you to walk on for his glory and for your benefit. But you can't do it and still sit 
against the wall or hang out by the punch bowl or dance with the people you were dancing with. It's him or it's not with him. It's holy or it's unholy. And for those of you who are just checking out Christianity, all the muck and the mire that you felt your life bogged down in, there is a call from Jesus himself to immediately relieve you of that mess you've been bogged down in and to give you a life that is out of the darkness and into his marvelous light. Let me pray for us. Father, as we enter into a time of worship, would you help us to just go back to 1 John 1, 9, as you called this early church to not just confess the name of Jesus, but to live the name of Jesus, you call us to do the same. And so, Lord, may we take the next few minutes and have a time of confession. May we confess our sins to you and may you forgive us of those sins. And Lord, may you at the same time cleanse us from all unrighteousness and put us back into play for you. Would you move in this place? In Jesus' name, Lord, amen. One of the sweetest things you can do as you stand and we begin to worship is to have someone pray with you and for you. Brad Smith, one of our elders, is here tonight. We've got a bunch of folks from the prayer team. They'll be back over here in the back, and they would love to pray for you and pray with you. Would you stand as we worship?